You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Let's turn to God's Word, and we've been looking at the end of Isaiah. We're coming towards the end of it. We're in Isaiah 64. It's on page 750. I want to read the whole of this before we look at it. Isaiah 64, and the context is that God's people are struggling. <clears throat> Isaiah the prophet has come, and God has given him a message which increasingly, uh, this is the good news in the Old Testament, increasingly points towards Christ. And then this prayer comes, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. As when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God beside you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us. And made us waste away because of our sins. Yet, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look upon us, we pray, for we are all your people. Your sacred cities have become a desert. Even Zion is a desert. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and glorious temple where our fathers praised you has been burned with fire, and all that we treasured lies in ruins. After this, O Lord, will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? Well, next week we'll go into Isaiah 65, which is the answer to that question. But I want to look at this chapter, and I want you to think about it in this way. I had a friend who was at a conference uh, where uh, it was a bit awkward because there was a man from Croatia there, and he was sitting beside a man from Serbia, and they were at war. And he wondered how they would get on. And he said it was a beautiful picture of how the gospel reconciles people. I had a little bit of that this week myself. I was at a minister's conference, and I'll let you into a wee secret. Not all ministers get on with one another. And occasionally, there can just be wee niggles and rivals. And a number of years ago, um, I, had a wee, I had a wee fight with a minister. Uh, that's a wee rammy, as we call it in Scottish Presbyterian circles. And at the end of that particular wee rammy, this particular minister lost his job, and the church split, and so on. So, you know, he was there at this conference, and there were people looking at us going, I wonder how they're going to get on. So I just went and sat beside him for lunch, and there were people actually, there were people taking cameras, saying, no, he can't be. But why not? Because we're all sinners, and we all do things that are wrong, and the gospel brings reconciliation. And that 
is basically across the board. Now, you and I, you know what it's like. It's possible you could even be in this church and to be honest, there's somebody who's just hurt you, wounded you, whatever, or you've done that to them and there's a barrier between you and there's a coldness and the church is big enough that you manage to keep your distance. You don't want that awkward moment when you have to talk to each other. It's horrible when that happens. It's horrible when it happens in your own family, when brothers and sisters don't talk, when parents and children don't talk, when there is real estrangement. And the greatest estrangement of all is when we are estranged from our Creator and God, our Father. And that is what this passage is about. And it's only God's intervention that can turn around our lives. And we're going to see how that happens. So, first of all, let's look at these first three verses. And, and the question really is, what, what do we want God to do? Now, it's interesting how this is always translated. And maybe uh, I'm going to have to ask uh, Will, who's our resident Hebrew expert, why it's always translated this way. Because everyone tells me that it shouldn't be translated this way. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Because... It's actually, that that's as, is as a prayer for God to do something in the future, and although that's a legitimate reading and understanding of it, the emphasis is really, Lord, why didn't you rend the heavens and come down? Why has all this happened to us? It's really about the past. It's saying, God, if you had been there with us, then this wouldn't have occurred. There's a, there's a puzzle. We know you're sovereign. We know you rule over the nations, so why is the world the way it is? We know that you can heal. So why do I have cancer? We know that you can unite. So why is my church so divided? We know that you desire to save people, and yet why are there so few people becoming Christians? We know that you are sovereign and you rule over the nations. So why is the world in such a mess? Now those are real and painful questions, and can't be answered. I don't think they can be answered theoretically, but I think they can be answered as we look at who God is, and what God has done, and what He continues to do. This idea of rending the heavens, what does that mean? Um, I actually found, I was kind of looking for kind of contemporary illustrations, and I just went back to Calvin, because he, <laughs> hardly contemporary, but he has a great way of explaining it. He says this, God is said to rend the heavens when he unexpectedly gives some uncommon and striking proof of his power. And the reason of this mode of expression is not only that men, when they are hard-pressed, commonly look up to heaven from which they expect assistance. How often have you seen that? You look up, you just, you know. But, but that miracles, by interrupting the order of nature, open up for themselves an unusual path. Now, when God renders no assistance, he appears to be shut up in heaven and to disregard what is taking place on earth. For this reason, he is said to open and rend the heavens when he holds out to us some testimony of his presence, because otherwise we think he's at a great distance from us. So when we're asking, Lord, why didn't you rend the heavens, or why won't you rend the heavens, or we're pleading, Lord, rend the heavens, what we're saying is this, we feel estranged, we feel distant, we probably are distant. We're far away, even as we sit and worship, even as we sing your praise. There are 101 different things going through our minds. It's as though you are far away from us. And we need something. We need almost this, uh, this proof 
of you being present with us. And he uses, talks about rending the heavens and the, the idea of ripping like a curtain, uh, of coming down, of the mountain shuddering, of the fire that purifies all that pollutes. He does this to make his name known. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. I was, because uh, I've been at a conference for ministers all week, just talking about different things. And of course, you talk about the great needs. It was actually quite funny because um, there's a hotel, it's the hotel, and there's a sauna. And I was in the sauna one morning, seven o'clock in the morning. I thought, who else is here but people at the conference? So I'm talking to a couple of guys, how's your church doing? And is the Lord at work? And so on. And then they all disappeared. There's one young guy left. And I just thought he was one of these hip happening, trendy young ministers, you know, with the beach shorts and the trim beard and the, everything else. So I started talking to him about his church and the gospel and everything. And after about two minutes, he kind of looked at me really strange. And I thought, wait a minute. And I said, are you at the conference? And he said, no, I'm a local. I just came up for a swim. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure he must have thought I was completely crazy. But just talking to, even, even after that, talking to him and talking to others, what is our greatest need? We're talking about that. And, and I heard one man saying this. He says, you know, we teach the Bible, and yet there's no sense of the presence of God. The kind that when a non-Christian comes in, says, wow, there's something here. Truly, God is amongst you. There's so much deadness and so much lifelessness and, 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 to be honest, so little passion. Even in a Scottish sense, I mean, it's great when we've got people from different cultures and people have different ways of expressing passion. So I used to think, I used to say, St. Pete's is, you know, a church where, you know, the praise is really lively. And, and I remember when Jacintha and Adeline came from Malaysia for the first time, they were saying, oh, you're so quiet. You know, and um, I remember the first time a couple of Africans came in, and this is when we were psalm singing only, and it was like for them a completely different world, which it was, because we have different ways of how we express ourselves. But no matter how we express ourselves, it's if there's something there to express, if there's passion, if there's love, if there's zeal for God, and you can't work that up, not in reality. You have to be conscious of God, and that's what is being asked, why weren't you there and why aren't you there now? You did awesome things that we did not expect. You came down and the mountains trembled before you. And then he goes on to talk about being in ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived. It's, it was to make God's name known, the great God. And here's the, the wonderful thing for those of us who are believers. And here's another problem, by the way, in the church today. In the church today, people keep saying, we need to bring God up to date so that it appeals to people. You don't bring God up to date. God is God. He's always God. We are the ones who keep changing. He doesn't change. If you are fitting your theology, if you're fitting your teaching to fit in with the culture of the immediate, the now, then you're not teaching God. Now, my argument would be, and I think the argument of Scripture is, that as we teach the Word of God, it applies across all cultures and all times. And the minute you start shaping it towards one culture or one particular group of people, then you're excluding everybody who doesn't fit with that culture or people. But this is for every single human being who's ever lived or who's ever going to live. He is the same God. And you see, you'll notice what they do here. They talk about, or Isaiah talks about the shared information we have. 
no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no, no eye has seen any God beside you. The perceptions that we have. And what he's saying is this. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your religion. It doesn't matter your, reti- your time or anything like that. There is only one God. Our perception of God doesn't make him God. He is God. He doesn't need us to tell him who he is. We do not create a God in our own image. This is a great God whom we need to know. You come to the help of those who gladly do right. You act on behalf of those who wait for him. We, we've read earlier in Isaiah 40, 31, but those who hope in the Lord, those who wait in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. And that waiting on God is patient, confident, expectant faith. A faith that is simple in its trust in the divine promises. And he says, you, you, you come to those who wait on you, and you come to those who gladly do right, who willingly obey. And therein lies the problem. Because we haven't patiently waited. And we don't gladly do right. We reluctantly do right sometimes. And we've got this enormous difficulty that occurs. We want God to rend the heavens. We want God to come down. And he does to those who are patient and expecting and have confident faith and to those who, who gladly do right. But the reason you and I and the reason that the church in Scotland today is really struggling in this is because we are not that. We have an almost insurmountable problem. God's character and unchangeable nature comes up against human sin. God's justice is fixed and our sin is fixed. And so how can God be with us? How can God come to us? How can God presence himself with us? That is the dilemma that's faced. And Isaiah goes on to use shocking language, and I'm going to use the language that he uses. He says, we've, we've all become like one who's unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. What's shocking about that? He's saying we're unclean. Immediately in that culture, people would recognize what was being said. It's the cry of the leper, who once they got leprosy, if they went, they had to cry out, unclean, unclean, so that people wouldn't go near them, or they would have to go into a separate community and be away from everybody else because they were unclean. And what's being said here is that our sin is so bad that it estranges us from God and it estranges us from his people. We are unfit for the fellowship of God and excluded from his people. And then he goes on, our righteous acts are like filthy rags. And again, the language in the English doesn't carry it as strongly as the Hebrew does, which is they're like menstrual rags. They are, you, you wouldn't wear them. He's saying you're righteous acts. The things that you do, never mind the bad things. Forget the murderer or the adulteries or the bad language or, what, or the greed or whatever he says. But your good deeds, your worship, your prayer, your helping the poor, your attempt to keep the Ten Commandments, you're fulfilling the sacrifices. In God's eyes, they're like filthy rags. They're soiled. You wouldn't wear them. And he's not done. You're shriveled like a leaf. You can still go out and you can still pick up some of the leaves there now. What's the difference between the leaves that are out there just now 
and the leaves that will hopefully be there in April and May, the ones in April, May, June, July are green and full of life and vibrant and connected to the tree. The ones you get just now that are still left that have not been blown away are brown and wrinkled. The life has gone. The life force is no longer present. And Isaiah is telling us, yeah, you're God's people. That's what you're called. But you're like lepers. You're like soiled clothes. You're like shriveled leaves. How then can we be saved? That's the question. How can we be saved? Well, verse 7 gives us the first hint of that. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you. And it's, it's kind of compounding it. But it's saying that the people no longer have a lively conception of God and are therefore not aware of how serious their condition is. No one strives. And again, the idea there is of somebody who's asleep and they're not doing anything. So they're lying at home and they're asleep. And it's saying no one lays hold of. And it's the images of falling and instead of grasping and holding on to the person who's going to save you from falling, you just let yourself fall. I don't know if you've ever had one of those nightmares. I have. Um, maybe this, you want to interpret this any way you want, but the nightmare that has you falling and falling and falling and falling, and there's nothing to hold on to. Well, that's the, the image that's being used here. And he's saying, we're asleep. And I'm telling you that this city today is full of people who, though they are physically awake, are spiritually asleep, and that the church is full of people who are spiritually asleep. No one calls on God's name because no one, it's all about us. It's all about ourselves. We're not aware of the majesty and the beauty and the glory of Christ. I was thinking, obviously I was thinking about this before I came out this morning, but I also <clears throat> listened to the service on Radio 4. And in so many ways, you look at it and I'm thinking, what is wrong with this? And I was thinking, what's wrong with me? Because technically there was nothing wrong with it. It was from an evangelical church and um, the, the praise was great, the songs were good, the readings were Bible readings, the, the message was, well, what you would expect you know, we've got to help the poor, and we've got to do this, and we've got to do that. And, and I'm thinking, what's wrong with this? And then I was thinking, what's wrong with me? And then, to me, it really kind of hit home. It's just all so safe, and so BBC, and so comfortable, and so nice. There's no holy God. There's no awesome God. There's nobody you'd bow down before. It's all, it is all cup of tea vicar, or whatever the equivalent is. It's just nice, and gentle, and hitting all the right buzzwords for our culture. But not an ounce of challenging the culture. It's as though you're going to somebody who's asleep and you sing them a lullaby to wake them up. It doesn't make any sense. But that's what we do. No one calls on your name. And then he makes it even stronger. All God has to do is show his face to the nations. Oh, that you would come down. Oh, that you would show your face and then it would melt before you. And what Isaiah is telling us is as though God has hidden his face. And that's why there's this dreadful estrangement. And he asks these questions. 
Who's going to take us back? We've been given over to our sins. God has given us what we've asked for. What is the answer to this? How can we deal with this? This is such a serious problem. And I do honestly believe, I think it's a problem in the church. I think it's a problem in my own life uh, as well, that what I long for more than anything else is the, the conscious sense of the presence of God. Give me that, and almost everything else just fits in. But it's missing in our churches, and it's missing, sadly, I think, in evangelical churches that even if they're Pentecostal and charismatic and very lively, sometimes it's just as dead as can be, and they can be stayed and be dead and so on. So what is the answer? Yet you, O Lord, are our Father. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. This is a prayer, and the prayer looks to the past, and the prayer looks in on ourselves, and prayer should do that. But prayer is not prayer if it doesn't look up to God. So we don't just look to the past, and we don't just look at our own sinfulness, we look to God, and we recognize His unchanging nature. He is not just the God who is fixed in His justice, but also in His mercy. He is our Father. So we ask questions. Where are you, God? Why are things so different from the way they used to be? Why are our hearts so hard? How can we be saved? How much longer will you be angry with us? And in this context of Isaiah 63 and 64, these are not questions of accusation, blaming God. These are questions, the painful questions of the trusting child. And the significance of what's said here about we are, you are the potter, we are all the work of your hand. I think that's um, just a beautiful picture. Why? Because of Isaiah 45 verse 9, Woe to those who quarrel with their maker, those who are nothing but potsherds among the potsherds on the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does your work say the potter has no hands? Woe to the one who says to a father, what have you begotten? Or to a mother, what have you brought to birth? This is the answer to that. This is the alternative to that. This is the opposite of that. We're not going to God and saying, what have you made? We're not going to God and say, how dare you make us like this? We're going to God and we're saying, but you're the father. You're the potter. We are the pots. It's a, it's a brilliant prayer. It's saying we are made in the image of the potter. And what you're doing in this kind of prayer is you're turning from yourself and you're pleading the nature of God. You're saying we are sinners. We are all sinners, but we are the work of your hand. And I love that we are the work of your hand because here's something that is tremendously important for those who are not yet Christians. And it's tremendously important when you're communicating the gospel to somebody. You do not go to people and tell them, if only you do this, if only you become a Christian, then you will be made in the image of God. You are made in the image of God. And that's what's so tragic about human beings who reject God. That's why sin is so horrible, because it's defacing the image of God. That's why when people steal and kill and murder, when there's child abuse and when there's uh, you know, injustice in terms of poverty and everything else, that, that's sin. It screams to high heaven because they're going against the image of God. And this is where the brilliance of this prayer is, because 
he's coming and saying, Lord, are you going to let our sin destroy your purposes? He's submitting, recognizing that God is God, recognizing that any deal that we have with God is not us saying, well, Lord, we'll do this for you if you do this for us. We're, we're coming and we're saying, Lord, you are the potter, we are the pots, you are the maker. We're stuck. We need your help. But yet you are our Father. You are our Father. And so comes this, repentance. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. He's already said, we've all sinned. And then he says, we are all your people. He's asking God to justly deal with our sins because God has to do that. But he's saying, literally, don't let your anger have full measure. And he's reflecting what uh, Psalm 103 says. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. But as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. You need to learn that psalm by heart. And you need to have those words for when the devil comes to accuse, for when your heart accuses, for when the world accuses. Because you have a father who has compassion on his children. And what about your sin? You know, it, it's interesting in our world. Our world's so nuts. It really is. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. On television, we exalt every single kind of sin and then we desperately hunt to try and find sins of people so that we can condemn them. You know, I'm not going to say this often, but I did feel a wee bit sorry for Donald Trump this week. Uh, and I, It's not a phrase you'll hear often. But um, part of it was, you know, all these people scouring, looking to try and find something in his past. Well, it's not really very difficult. But they're trying to find stuff all the time. And I'm thinking, do you know this? I don't want anyone to be looking into my life and what I feel, what I think, what I've done. I don't want people to know that. And the, the most holy person here in one sense, you, you don't want that either. It's always easy to find stuff which to condemn us and to keep it, to keep it on tape. Apparently with Mr. Trump, the Russians have a tape, whether you believe that or not, and they're going to keep it and use it and so on. It's just such a weird world that we live in. Well, the only person who knows everything about us and knows everything wrong that we've done is God. And what's being said here is God doesn't keep a tape. He's not keeping a record. Those who come to him, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Now, for those who don't come to him, what you're saying is, Lord, I'm going to stand on my own record. That's your choice. That's your record. But for the Christian, our sins are forgiven. Do not remember our sins forever. Look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. Now, there's still something missing here as we're going with this. And just, uh, as I say, we'll come on to more of it next week. But just these last few verses. Your sacred cities have become a wasteland. Even Zion is a wasteland. Jerusalem, a desolation. 
the temple destroyed. How did this happen? Now look what he asks at the end. After all this, Lord, will you hold yourself back? Not in anger, but in grace and in mercy. Now this is reflecting chapter 63 and verse 15. Look down from heaven and see from your lofty throne, holy and glorious. Where are your zeal and your might? Your tenderness and compassion are withheld from us. So, what Isaiah is doing is he's, he's thinking about God and he's saying, Lord, if you had been here, if you had rent the heavens, then you would have caused the nations who oppressed us to flee and to melt away. But you didn't do that. Why didn't you do that? You didn't do that because we were not those who waited for you and we were not those who were glad to do righteous. And so there's this tremendous barrier. But you are still our Father. And so you can come and you can forgive and remake, but he doesn't say how. How does God come and forgive us and remain just? And you, you know the answer. The answer, this is all pointing to Christ. So, for example, um, come down, O Lord. Well, he did. That's the point. What is God like? We see in Christ what God is like. Jesus came down. I'm not very sure how much Isaiah grasped and understood what would happen, but he knew like Job that there had to be a redeemer, and Christ came down, rend the heavens. Does that not remind you of when Christ died on the cross, the curtain of the temple was ripped in two. The temple the curtain that prevented people getting into the Holy of Holies, it was ripped in two because by Christ's body being ripped in two. The barrier between us and God, the estrangement between us and God is gone because here is the key. God is able to judge sin and forgive us because he judged sin in his son, our sin in his son. The mountains would have shuddered the whole world be turned upside down. That's exactly what happened. When the gospel is proclaimed, the world is turned upside down. There's the fire that comes. And here it is the fire of the Holy Spirit. Tongues, like tongues of fire, settling on the disciples at Pentecost. The fire of God. Pascal, the uh, Catholic philosopher, mathematician, polyglot, French, uh, amazing guy. His pensées, his thoughts are absolutely fabulous in English. I'm sure they're great in French as well, but get the, the English translation unless you are French. And, and he, he kept sewn. When he died, he kept sewn in his jacket pocket, jacket lining, just a statement about what happened to him one night where he just said, the fire, the fire. He knew what it was to know and feel the presence of God. That's what's promised, to make your name known. Come down and make your name known, and God's name is known to the ends of the earth. There are people here this morning who a week ago were in New Zealand or Singapore or America, and God's name was being praised and proclaimed. And that is still going to be the case. Go into all the earth, and that's happened. You see, there's a cleansing. We are unclean. All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. And by the way, if you're here and you're not a Christian, 
and you're saying, okay, I, I like this idea of being a Christian. I like this idea of following God, and I'm going to do all these different things. Well, good. Do them. But not one of them will save you. They'll probably make you worse, even the religious stuff. There's only one thing that can cleanse you. It's a bit like, um, maybe some of you will never have had this problem. You spill red wine on a white carpet. How do you get rid of that? Salt, I don't know, lots of different things. Uh, you know, how do you, it seems, there's, I remember one time I, I, I spilled something, I thought, I've got to go and clear this up. And I knew nothing about cleaning. And, and I, I was a little bit concerned about Annabelle coming home and finding the mess. And every attempt I made clean to clean it made it worse. I thought, I'm just going to have to confess this or move the chair and cover it, <laughs> you know, but then she's going to move it and find out. So do I, you know, I kept trying and trying and trying. I couldn't get it clean. I just, I mean, I was scrubbing and doing everything. Couldn't get it clean. There was a way to clean it, just I didn't know. And that's the same with us. What cleanses us is this. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It is Christ's shed blood which cleanses from defilement, which gives us access to God, which works deep within the individual to cleanse and to liberate the conscience. It's Christ's blood that gives us a new status before God. We are, as Paul says, justified by his blood. And for those of us who are Christians and know those words, yeah, you know them. I know you know them in here, but do you know them in here? Why then are you so guilty? Why are you so wrapped up in yourself? You've been justified by his blood. We are no longer estranged because of the blood of Christ. We've given the right to become children of God. We are sons and daughters of the king. I don't even think Isaiah could see the glory and the beauty that was to come in Christ. And yet he, he filled it with this wonderful language that speaks of this, this great savior coming and what would happen. And we are on the other side of that. And yet we still need to hear about it because we forget. Hebrews 4. Since we have a great high priest who's ascended into heaven, Jesus, Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. I will guarantee that there isn't a single person here who understands what it is for Jesus to be tempted in every way just as we are. Or at least, I will guarantee this, we can't feel it. How could Christ be tempted in the way that I am tempted? But he was, and yet he didn't sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Isaiah goes and he prays. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Why didn't you? Oh, that you would. We as Christians, we go and we say, Lord, you rent the heavens and you came down. And we ask you to do it again. And we ask you to come into our lives, into our fellowships and into our communities. And we come with absolute confidence, not because of the good we have done, not because we have waited patiently, not because of the righteous things we have done, but we come in the name of Jesus because this is what Jesus has done and we trust absolutely and totally and 100% in Jesus. That's it. That's the good news. That's the gospel. 
That means I can go to the junkie out in the street and say, there's good news for you. It means I can go to the most vicious and wicked person and say, there's good news for you. I can go to the most depressed and suicidal person and say, there's good news for you. Because everything that causes your estrangement, you come to Christ, Christ takes, and Christ has paid for. We need to pray that the Lord would restore that just sense of of what the gospel really, really is, and that we would preach it to ourselves, and that we would see that it's all about Jesus. Let me share just one other thing, just to finish. Um, Sinclair was speaking at the Creef conference, and he said something that initially, I kind of, you sort of shock it, you kind of think it's a bit shocking. God loves you because Jesus died for you. That's heresy. It's wrong. God doesn't love you because Jesus died for you. Jesus died for you because God loves you. Don't get into your head that somehow God was really just set up against you and then along came Jesus to persuade him. It was God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God so loved that he sent his son. Jesus died for you because God loves you. And when you understand that, it's like, really? How could, don't I have to do anything? No. Isn't there some kind of religious thing or something? No. How do I know God loves me? Where are you? Christ died for me. That's how I know God loves me. And you know this, I have no right to demand of God, please do something more to prove it. There is nothing more that could prove the love of God than that. All I ask simply is, Lord, rip open my heart, open my mind, that I may understand and grasp the wonder of the beauty of God that is in Christ and what Christ has done. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.